And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes in Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As we prepare for our study of God's Word this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship through the use of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we confess our sins to God the Father in the privacy of our priesthood, we are immediately cleansed from all sin. We are restored to fellowship with God. We recover the filling of the Holy Spirit. And we are prepared to learn to take in God's Word under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So let's begin with a few moments of silent prayer if necessary, and then we'll begin. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege we have to come to your word, that it is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path that illuminates every area of our lives. There's no category, there's no realm of thought, there's no uh, type of activity that is not illuminated to some degree by the infallible word. And Father, we pray that now as we listen to the teaching of your word, as we examine what you have to say to us, that we would be receptive, that we would be responsive, and that God the Holy Spirit would make clear to us how these things apply to each one of our lives, that we might be transformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why are you here this morning? What is your real reason for being here? That's what I want you to think about as we go through this introduction to John chapter 6. So open your Bibles with me to the 6th chapter of John. John chapter 6. One of the dominant themes in this gospel is that of judgment. Now, in John chapter 3, we have a foreshadowing of the events, at least thematically, in the editorial comments of the Apostle. John 3.17, the Apostle writes, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. That was not His primary mission in the first advent. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. And that is a perfect tense of the verb which indicates an action completed in the past with results that go on forever. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light is come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light. Even though Jesus did not come into the world to judge man, His very presence announced judgment. When Jesus spoke, it evoked an immediate response of acceptance or rejection by His hearers, as does every act of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, And does not come to the light. The light is the revelation of God, specifically through the incarnation of the Logos, the Word of God, the second person of the Trinity, and secondarily through the exposition and teaching of the written Word of God. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. What we see in this is that the very presence of Jesus Christ 
called men to judgment, to evaluation, to make a statement. Their lives were a reaction to him in the same way that perhaps someone without any exposure to art would walk into the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York and not have any appreciation or understanding for the wonderful masterpieces that are there. Their presence hanging there there on the wall exposes a person's uh, ignorance or their intelligence by the way it reacts to what they see. And the same is true about Jesus Christ. And this is what we see developed in the episode of the sixth chapter of John. What happens here is phenomenal. It begins when Jesus is at the high point, the apex of his popularity. If you were to chart this, then this would be at the very high point of his three-year ministry when he had the greatest number of followers. What has happened in the intervening period from John 5 to John 6 is that John the Baptist was executed. So all of John's followers have now shifted their full attention to Jesus. They are following him. A number of other factors which we'll see as we go through the chapter. There's a vast multitude Thousands upon thousands are now following Jesus. And we see at the beginning of chapter 6 that these crowds, these multitudes, are following Jesus everywhere He goes. But when we come to the end, He is at the low point. By the end of this chapter, only twelve remain. Everyone else deserts Him. No one else wants to listen to Him. Why does this happen? What takes place between the beginning of chapter 6 and the end of chapter 6 to drive off the crowds. What destroys his popularity with the masses? Another thing that we're going to see and question and see some answers to in this chapter is that I believe this chapter, along with 1 Samuel 8, has some great implications for political theory. You see, the Bible addresses every subject known to man and gives us insight into everything, and what we see here is a tremendous condemnation of the entire concept that the majority is right. Because the majority among the masses want Jesus to be a political figure to free them from the tyranny of Rome. And yet Jesus completely rejects their power move, and that's one reason they reject them. And he shows, and it is shown in this chapter, that not only is a majority not always right, but often the majority is completely wrong because they're operating on human viewpoint concepts and they're not operating on the absolutes of Scripture. Now, as we come to chapter 6, I want to take a quick review of where we've come from in the studying the life of Christ. From chapter 2, verse 12, down through the end of chapter 3, verse 36, We saw Jesus' first trip to Jerusalem. On that first trip to Jerusalem, he went to the temple. And there he came into confrontation and conflict with the authorities. He threw the money changers out of the temple. And that was something, and he announced that if you tear down this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. And in fact, that very statement was brought up against him at his trial and was part of the charge which led to his crucifixion. In the fourth chapter... We see Jesus, the response to Jesus by the people in Samaria. They flock to him. His ministry expands. There are no signs and wonders there. There's no healing ministry in Samaria, and yet hundreds come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. There he healed the nobleman's son, and we see the second great sign of his Messiahship. The fifth chapter of John, we see Jesus' second trip to Jerusalem. This was an unspecified feast day, and between John chapter 2 and and John chapter 1, literally the beginning of our study when he was uh, came out of the wilderness and was recognized by John the Baptist, up to the point of John chapter 6, two years have gone by. Two years have gone by. John does not cover much of what took place in that time. That's left to the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And John just hits the high points. John 5, we saw his second trip to Jerusalem where he heals the cripple at uh, Beth 
at Bethesda, and then the confrontation with the Pharisees where he claims to be God, and he makes clear to the Pharisees his claim to be God. He claims that every work he performs is the work of the Father. Every thought he thinks is the thought of the Father. Every word he speaks is the word of the Father. And he claims to be one with God, equal with God, and totally subordinate to God. And then we come to the sixth chapter. Between the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6, about six months has transpired. The scene shifts from Jerusalem, the scene of chapter 5, to the countryside in Galilee in chapter 6. Another thing I want you to notice is the thematic shifts that John weaves into his narration. In John chapter 3, the focus is on the officials as uh, illustrated in one one official, Nicodemus. John chapter 4 looks at the people and their response to Jesus. John chapter 5, the shift goes back to the leadership. John 6, it's back on the people. And by doing this, shifting back and forth, putting our focus first on the leadership, then on the people, then on the leadership, then on the people, John is going to indict both the leadership and the people for their negative volition and their rejection of Jesus Christ. When we come to this sixth chapter, it's a long chapter, a lengthy chapter, 71 verses, And here we're going to see the fourth sign related to Jesus' Messiahship. Remember in John 20, 30, Jesus mentioned the sign, I mean, John mentions the signs that Jesus performed. And then in John 20, 31, he says, but these, that is these signs, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you might have life in his name. So he's organizing these signs in order to prove a case. And that case is that Jesus is who he claims to be, the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, who is none other than the Son of God, eternal deity, who has come to earth to die as a substitute for man's sins. The first sign was changing water into wine. And when we studied that, we saw that wine is a symbol of man's joy. And the purpose for changing the water into wine was to symbolize the fact that only through The Messiah, only through Jesus Christ, can man have the joy and happiness that he hungers for in his soul. Then the second sign in chapter 4, where Jesus healed the nobleman's son, we see his identification with human anguish and illness. And here we see that Jesus, the Messiah, supplies the need for man and solves man's problems. In John chapter 5, again, we see his identification with human helplessness in the healing of the cripple. And there again, we see that the Messiah alone is able to solve the problems of mankind. And now in chapter 6, we're going to see his identification with human hunger and that only the Messiah can satisfy the real hunger of man's heart, which is a spiritual hunger. So ultimately, all of these signs point us to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah and he alone has the ability to provide for and to resolve the problems of human experience. And we come to John 6, verse 1, and it begins, After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. That was another name for it, was the Sea of Tiberias. The earlier name was the Sea of Gennesaret begins after these things, which is simply a way of saying that a literary device for saying time had gone by and many months later, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So it doesn't take place in Jerusalem. It's sometime later. Jesus goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So let's locate ourselves geographically. On the overhead, I have a map. Of Israel. Down here is Judah. This body of water here is the Dead Sea. The Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea. It's one of the lowest places on the earth. It is 1,296 feet below sea level. And up to the north is the Sea of Galilee. At the time when Jesus was on the earth, Judea was one province, and then Samaria is to the north. 
and to the north of that is Galilee, which is another province under a different political leadership. The area that we are concerned with in this chapter is the area around the Sea of Galilee. So let's blow the map up a little bit and get a more detailed picture of the Sea of Galilee. On the north shore is Capernaum. This is where Jesus has made his home. And over here is Bethsaida. Down here is the town of Tiberias where uh, Herod Antipas had made his headquarters. Jesus leaves Capernaum and he goes across the Sea of Galilee to this area north of Tiberias. And it will be in this hillside area up above the Sea of Galilee that these events take place. Now what happens here is that one of the reasons you have the crowds is that verse 4 tells us that the Passover is at hand. It's not quite Passover yet, but it is almost Passover. And you must keep that in mind. John doesn't just put that in because it's just an interesting fact. That's one of the reasons the crowds are here. They are leaving. They are on their way down to uh, Jerusalem. And so they are following Jesus as well. And the elements of the Passover... Remember the two elements of Passover, they come over into the Lord's table of the bread and the, and the wine, the bread and the cup. And this provides the background for what is called the bread of life discourse in John chapter 6. And this is, we're going to see the feeding of the 5,000 with a loaf of bread and small fishes. And this provides the background. So the people are thinking in terms of Passover. So this is an important element in understanding what is taking place here. Now, if we look at the parallel passage to this verse, in Mark chapter 6, we learn something that is helpful and particularly insightful in understanding the dynamics of this passage. Mark 6, we read, in Mark 6, 32 through 34, And they, that is, Jesus and the disciples, departed into a desert place by ship privately. It's time for Jesus to get alone with his disciples What has taken place in the interim is that the events of Matthew 12, where the Pharisees rejected Jesus' uh, miraculous powers, claimed that he did it by by the power of Satan, and that's the official rejection from that point on. Jesus begins to minister more and to teach more specifically to his disciples, and he has less of a public ministry. We know from chronological indications that this particular Passover is the second Passover that John mentions, but it's the third Passover of four in the life of Christ. He begins his ministry just before that first Passover when he went to Jerusalem and threw the money changers out of the temple. The second Passover is not mentioned by John. This is the third Passover. A year from now, Jesus will be crucified. So this is the last year of his ministry. He's with the disciples and he's beginning to teach them more specifically in preparation for their, ministry, their future ministry as apostles. So he takes them into an isolated area in order to teach them some doctrine. Mark 6.33 says, And the people saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran afoot thither out of all the cities, and they came together with him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw the people and was moved with compassion towards them, because they were as sheep not having a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. So what Mark tells us about this episode is that as Jesus is away in this isolated area with his disciples, he looks out and he sees the great multitude. John just tells us a great multitude was following him because they were seeing the signs which were performing, which he was performing on those who were sick. You see, they're more interested in the in the miracles and the special effects. They're not really interested in doctrine. They're not really interested in spiritual truth. They're there for the healings. But Jesus looks out, and Jesus sees what their need is, and Mark tells us that he's moved with compassion. Now, we live in an emotional era when most people don't understand what compassion, what true compassion really is. And this tells us a little bit about what true compassion is. True compassion is giving people what they need, not what they want. And when Jesus has compassion upon the people, he doesn't go out and put his arm around them and talk to them about, you know, sweet little sayings. He doesn't give them warm fuzzies or hugs, which is all the typical human viewpoint, modus operandi of today. Jesus is going to give them doctrine. 
Because the issue is what you're thinking, not what you're feeling. The issue is not how rough life has been. The issue is how are you going to handle the hardships and difficulties of life with the principles that God has given you. So the scripture says that he began to teach many things. Now the verb here in the Greek is from the verb poimino. Looks like this. P-O-I-M-A-I-N-O. Now sometimes it's translated or, or he says there were sheep not having a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. Now, 1 Peter 5, 2 relates to this and uses the term poimino. That's not in Mark 6. It's in 1 Peter 5. Where Peter says, shepherd the flock of God among you. So what, by comparing Mark 6, 34, which pictures Jesus as the great shepherd shepherding the sheep, and combining that with 1 Peter 5, 2, we realize that the act of shepherding is related to teaching. Remember, Mark 6.34 says that Jesus looked on them as a sheep not having a shepherd. So he steps in and takes the role of the great shepherd. And the role of the shepherd is to teach them many things. Peter says that the pastor is to shepherd the flock of God and uses this word poimino. Now the term shepherd is a figure of speech. And it relates to the physical act of a human being who is in charge of a flock of sheep. But it is used in the scriptures metaphorically to represent the role of a man who leads a congregation of believers. Now, whenever we use a figure of speech, we have to delve into its meaning. Now, it's been a long time since many of you have had uh, any instruction in figures of speech in high school English, so we'll have to review a few things. Basic figure of speech is called a simile. A simile is a stated comparison. And a stated comparison would be you are like a shepherd. Where it's clear what the comparison is. And you always find the word like or as and that makes it a simile. It's a stated comparison. You are like a shepherd. You are like a shepherd. But in a metaphor, it's an unstated comparison. You are a shepherd. So on the one hand, you have the role and function of a literal shepherd. And on the other hand, you have the role of a pastor. Now, there are many things that a shepherd does to sheep that are not part of the analogy. That's the important thing. See, a a shepherd is going to become very invasive in terms of the privacy of sheep because, after all, sheep are dumb animals. And that ought to say something to us when God compares us with sheep. So there are things that the shepherd does. For example, he continually examines the sheep, looks at everything uh, in their life to make sure, you know, picks up their paws and or feet or whatever sheep have and looks at them and examines that to make sure there are no cuts or bruises. And he picks them up and, and you don't expect a pastor of a church to be that closely involved in people's lives. So you have to determine what is the area of comparison between a shepherd and a pastor. And that is, many people just start talking about, well, a shepherd does this and a shepherd does that, and, and they immediately apply everything to a pastor. But the scripture clearly tells us what the point of analogy is between a sheep and a shepherd. And we learned this in John 21, verses 15 through 17. This is after the resurrection. And the Lord is talking to Peter. And in John 21:16, the Lord says to Peter a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter replied, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, shepherd my sheep. And there we have the present active imperative of the verb poimino, to shepherd my sheep. Well, what does that mean? Well, if you look at the context of John 21:16 you will see that it is sandwiched between two other questions Jesus had of Peter. In John 21:15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, this is the first question, 
Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Tend, that's the New American Standard translation, Tend my lambs. And there we have the present active imperative of the Greek verb bosco, B-O-S-K-O. Bosco means to pasture animals or to herd animals in such a way as to take care of their nutritional needs, to lead them to food and to water. So bosco basically means to feed animals, not just tending them. That brings in a whole lot of other aspects. Primarily, it focuses on providing for their nutritional needs to tend my lambs. Now, there's a parallelism going on here. So when Jesus gives Peter his second command in verse 16, he says, shepherd my sheep. Shepherd is a more general term. And we learn what he means by shepherd by looking at the parallel, which is bosco, tend, feed, feed my sheep. And then in John 21:17, Jesus says to Peter a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, this is the second time he says this, tent. So you see it's bracketed. It's feed Bosco, feed my sheep, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep. What does it mean to shepherd? Shepherd specifically means in Scripture to provide for the spiritual nutrition of the flock of God. To feed them spiritually, to provide them that which they need to grow from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. It doesn't mean to commiserate with people. It doesn't mean to socialize with people. All the things that you find that go on in pastoral studies classes. It doesn't mean to always be putting your arm around people or going out and visiting them every week, going down to the hospital, getting out, working the crowds, schmoozing with the congregation, talking about how much you understand their pain, That's not what pastoring is. Pastoring in the Scripture is very simple. It's doing what Jesus did. It's teaching doctrine. Now, the reason I am belaboring the point here is because of what happens in John chapter 6. See, when Jesus steps in to shepherd the sheep, He is illustrating for His disciples their primary responsibility. I want to make four observations. First of all, He is teaching the disciples that their primary responsibility and by implication and application, the primary responsibility of the pastor is to feed those who are starving spiritually. From this we're going to see that in this episode of feeding the 5,000 that the pastor teacher, the apostles, and the pastor teacher does not feed them with what they have. Their resources are not the source of the feeding. They feed what the Lord gives them, and it is the Lord who will take and multiply what He feeds. It's not my job to apply the passage for you. In fact, for every person here, there's a different personality, there's a different set of problems, there's a different life situation and life circumstances. And I was taught in seminary that, that, and and the pastor who taught this, I don't know how he could do this, because the man who taught this had had pastored a large congregation of almost a thousand in a major metropolitan area. And he said what he would do, and they always get so sanctimonious, on Saturday night he would mentally walk down the aisles of the church and think about where everybody sat and think in terms of what he was teaching the next morning or he was preaching. He never taught much in his life. But what he was preaching the next morning and he would think about how it applied to each individual. And then he would build his illustrations Around that, And I thought, what arrogance that he really understands and knows what these people are struggling with and where they actually are spiritually. You see, no pastor can do that. You come from 40, 50 different backgrounds, situations, personalities, different places of spiritual growth. It's the pastor's responsibility to teach it as clearly as he can. 
But it is the role of God the Holy Spirit to show you how these truths apply to your life. He is the one that multiplies the food. And then, uh, the second point was that the pastor doesn't teach from his own resources, but what the Lord gives. And the third point is, it's the Lord and the Holy Spirit who make the application. And then the fourth observation that we will see is that spiritual food is without cost. It is free. It is grace. It is God's free provision for the spiritual nourishment of believers. Now, the principle that we're going to see in this chapter is that between chapter 6, verse 1, when there is a great multitude of many thousands, maybe as many as 20,000, probably close to 15,000 in this crowd. Because remember, when he feeds the 5,000, we're going to see that it says 5,000 men. That doesn't count the women and children. So if you add in all the women and children, there could be as many as 20,000, maybe as few as 12,000, but probably somewhere in the general vicinity, we'll just say 15,000. So there's a large crowd here. And when he begins at the beginning and he looks out there and he begins to teach them doctrine, there's 15,000. When he finishes, there's 12. Not 12,000. 12. Look at what he says in John 6.66. I'm tying this whole passage together. Then the next coming weeks we're going to Look at it in detail. John 6.66, it says, As a result of this, many of his disciples, and the word we'll see disciple means student. Many of his students, that is of the 15,000, withdrew. They all withdrew, folks, all but the 12. They withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. What happens? He taught doctrine, folks. You see, doctrine doesn't attract people. Doctrine drives people away. Why? Because most of us have, in our arrogance, think that we have a pretty good handle on what life is all about. We have our own agendas, our own plans. And as soon as anybody starts getting very detailed in Scripture, it starts challenging how we think and how we look at life, the very core of our existence. And once that happens, it makes us uncomfortable. And most people want to go to church and get some warm, fuzzy, feel-good sermon so that they can go home and talk about how wonderful it was to be in the presence of God this morning. They don't want to go and be challenged at how to think, be forced to concentrate, to have to evaluate how they look at life and how they evaluate life. And worst of all, or most of all, they don't want to be told that 99% of their opinions are false and they need to renovate their thinking from the ground floor, or perhaps even the basement, up. What we learn from this is that if Jesus had followed those principles that I was taught in pastoral ministries and seminary, the last thing he would have done is teach any doctrine, because that drives people away. And what we're taught in seminary today is how to gain the crowds, how to bring people in. What we see in this passage is that truth divides. And truth is the issue. So we're going to see that doctrinal teaching always has a way of revealing who is truly positive to doctrine and who's just along for the ride. That's why I asked the question at the beginning, why are you here? Because these people were following Jesus for all kinds of reasons. And what I found over the years is people show up at church For all kinds of reasons. And frankly, the only reason that counts is that you realize that you need to have your thinking renovated. But if you think you're going to renovate your thinking by just showing up once a week, I'd just assume you stayed home because you'll get a lot more out of whatever you watch on TV and a lot more spiritual benefit out of that than you are by just barely dabbling in Scripture once a week. And I mean that. Most people are playing games with God when they think that a 30-minute or 45-minute or an hour on Sunday morning is enough to prepare them to spend eternity as saints who will rule and reign with Jesus Christ. You see, that's the whole point of our personal sense of our eternal destiny is we begin to realize that we're in the training ground right now. We're in boot camp right now to prepare us 
for eternity. And your eternal role, the reason God saved you, ultimately, is to not only be an heir of God, but a joint heir with Jesus Christ. And as joint heirs with Christ, we will rule and reign with Him in the millennium if, the passage says, we have suffered with Him. Now, that never attracts people to learn that Christian life means you're going to have to suffer. Because we want everything to be fine and we want to think that God's going to solve all our problems and make them go away. But what we're learning is that the problem-solving devices of stress busters do not make the problems go away. They enable us to have stability and joy and happiness no matter how harsh the circumstances become and no matter how difficult the circumstances are, difficult the suffering. But the only way that we can learn that is to spend a lot of time having our thinking renovated so we learn all of the principles God has for us. And you know, sometimes I think after... 25 years of intense Bible study in my life, including four graduate years working on a master's at Dallas, plus another four years working on a doctorate at Dallas Seminary, 25 years of studying and teaching the Bible in professional in the capacity of professional ministry, I think I'm just beginning to scratch the surface of what this is all about. And it's really exciting. But if I'm just beginning to scratch the surface with all that behind me, What about the average person? And that's why 25 years ago when I was sitting in the pew, I began to realize that if this book is what it claims to be, then it doesn't matter what else I do in life, how successful I am, what I do with children or marriage or anything else in life. When it's all said and done, what matters is what I've done spiritually and what I've learned and been able to apply from this word, word of God. And that's not going to happen just by occasionally showing up when it's convenient. I know that steps on a few toes. But what we're going to learn from John chapter 6, and why some of you may not want to show up for another month or two, is that what Jesus is saying is that if we're at all interested in our spiritual life, then that will demand that we completely reorganize everything else in our life so this becomes the central issue in our life, learning the Word of God. Because what happens when everybody leaves Jesus, Jesus turns to the twelve and He said, expecting a positive end, you don't want to go away also, do you? And notice Peter's response. Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. Peter's getting the point. that It doesn't matter what else is going on in life. You're the only one that has the words of eternal life, and we're not going to leave. But everybody else is on a different agenda, wanting something different. Turn back to the beginning of the chapter. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, and a great multitude was following him because... They were seeing the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. This is the scene. The crowds are following him because of his miracles. All the verbs here are in the imperfect tense, which is continuous action in past time. So we should translate that, and a great multitude was continually following him because they were continually seeing the signs which he was continually performing. Jesus is at the height of his popularity. Now, verse 2 gives us the setting and the situation. But verse 27 is going to give us the theological or doctrinal interpretation of these events. Look down at verse 27. After it's all said and done, Jesus has fed the 5,000. He's got to teach. This is a teaching point for the disciples. And he says, Do not work for the food which perishes, for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. For on Him the Father, even God, has set His seal. See, what Jesus is saying is just the opposite of what you learn from modern human viewpoint thinking. I don't know what it's like today, but I know when I was in college and taking some management courses, the, the favorite guru of that time was Abraham Maslow and Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. 
And Maslow starts off, and it's based on pure empirical system that, that before you can really deal with people at a certain level, you've got to make sure that their basic needs are satisfied. And basic needs, food, shelter, clothing, then sex, and then love, and then eventually self-actualization, I think, is the pinnacle of Maslow's system. And that's true from a purely human viewpoint, empirical basis. But you see, that's not what the Bible says. And you go all the way back to looking at the, the episode with Cain and Abel, to Jacob and Esau's rejection of his birthright in favor of the the mess of pottage, the lentil soup. And you see that the problem of one, one of these failures after the other is that they put spiritual needs second to physical needs. Now, most of us think that our job's more important and putting food on the table and paying the bills is more important, taking care of our kids, whatever that may entail, that that's more important than spiritual sustenance. But the challenge throughout the Scripture, the challenge in John 6, is is doctrine the number one priority in your life. Because when it's all said and done, the only thing that you take with you when you're absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord is the doctrine in your soul that has transformed your soul into the image of Jesus Christ. What are you going to look like when you're absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. That's what Jesus is saying. That the whole emphasis here in this chapter is the importance of spiritual sustenance, which is more important than the food which perishes. Deuteronomy says it very clearly. Jesus quoted it in His temptation from Satan. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That doctrine is more important than anything else in your life. And you won't start living until you realize that. That's what Jesus says. But for the food which endures to eternal life. You want to have real life. It starts with having your thinking renovated by doctrine. That's what gives us capacity for life. Capacity for joy. Capacity for happiness. Without doctrine, it's all a sham. So the multitude is following him like the multitude does because they feel better. They're getting healed. They're seeing the miracles. But Jesus is going to go to another level with them. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat with his disciples. So he's in a quiet place. It's ready for a teaching moment. And John inserts the fact that now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, is at hand. Now, John makes a real issue throughout this gospel of the Jewish feast days. And why does he do this? Because Jesus is the fulfillment of all the feast days. He shows that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover. He is the Passover of the Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But the Passover speaks of the Exodus. And the spiritual truth of the Exodus is that redemption from slavery is the result of judgment. And so we see this theme throughout the Gospel of judgment, salvation. And that only as a result of judgment, salvation, does man have true freedom and spiritual life. This is a major theme throughout the Scriptures. There's the judgment of the flood. There's the judgment of Exodus. Over and again, sin needs to be judged. And the result is redemption. Now, also in the Passover, you have the element of the lamb. You have the element of the bread. Of course, the bread speaks of the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ and hypostatic union. But bread also speaks of spiritual sustenance. And this is something that's going to be on the mind of everyone in this episode. And so it underlies this imagery of the Passover and the Passover bread and God's provision to the the Jews and the Exodus generation when they left Israel. They crossed the Red Sea and they went into the desert. And what did they do for food? Manna. The God who provided the physical sustenance for them in the desert is the God who provides 
everything we need for spiritual sustenance in life. Now, the interesting thing is, what does manna mean anyway? Manna comes from a Hebrew word which means what? And see, so often what happens is you hear people talk about this and they looked out and they saw it and they said, what is that? Now, that's not quite how I think it happened. The Jews were complaining. The Exodus generation had no capacity for their freedom. And that's one thing we learn here, is that you have to take in doctrine before you have capacity for freedom. And they had no doctrine, so they had no capacity for freedom. And when God provided for them, they had the same attitude the Jews in this chapter had. When God provided for them, and they looked out, they woke up in the morning, and they saw this provision of food for them, and this this wafer-like substance was scattered across the the, the grass like dew. They looked out there just like your 12-year-old looks at those vegetables on the plate that they've never seen before. And they said, what's that? <laughs> See, they weren't holier than thou. They were out of fellowship. What's that? What's God giving us? So God said, okay, now you're going to put manna. Reminded, you're going to call it manna because for the rest of your generation you're going to constantly be reminded of the grace of God through. What's that? So we tend to reject God's gracious provision and treat it lightly. And all of this is undergoing, these themes are underlying all of this in this passage. It's remarkable how John pulls this together, just these little words here and there. And this is why I keep saying we can't understand the New Testament unless we have a good understanding of the Old Testament. And that's why I think sometime this summer we'll finish our study in Galatians the first hour and then we're going to do some fun things in the Old Testament. So the Passover of the Feast of the Jews is at hand and that reminds us of redemption and God's provision of manna and bread in the wilderness. God's grace always provides everything that we need. Now, Jesus, therefore, in verse 5, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a great multitude was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread that these may eat? Now, this is a loaded question. He looks out there and he sees the multitude coming, thousands of people coming up through the valleys and the hills, coming to him. And he already understands the logistical problems. So he's going to see, he's going to test the disciples to see if where their focus is and if they've learned anything yet. It's going to teach them some things about faith. Faith rest drill is fundamental to all spiritual growth. This was the first thing that God began to teach to Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. He taught the faith rest drill to Noah, to Abraham. This is fundamental to all spiritual growth. So Jesus frames this question to Philip, but he, he sort of loads it a little bit. And he says, where are we to buy bread that these may eat? Now, they're out in the country. They're out on the hillside, and there's no store nearby. So when he says, where are we to buy bread, he's, it's almost like he's giving a little false clue here to Philip. And Philip takes the bait, and he doesn't even think, well, there's no place around here. We're out in the country. That's not the issue. You know, by saying... Where are we going to buy bread? Jesus is hoping to at least get his attention. Well, there's no place around here to buy bread, so that's not the issue. What is the issue? But Philip, like most of us, is thinking on that purely physical level. Jesus says, where are we to buy bread that these may eat? Now, remember the backdrop to this is our understanding of what faith is. Faith means that the Word of God, the promise of God, the provision of God is more real to you than any human experience. Now, the experience here is that there's 15,000 people that are coming and they're going to be hungry and there's no place nearby to get food. Now, is experience more real to you or is the provision of God more real to you? Verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii. Now, one, one denarius 
was about equal to a day's pay, minimum wage. So let's say about $40. Eight hours worth of work at, what, $5 an hour, $40. So this is $8,000. Let's put that in real money terms. Philip answers and says $8,000 worth of bread isn't enough for everybody to receive just a little bit. It's impossible. That's what Philip is saying. This is an impossible scenario. He's just wrapped up in terms of the physical realities, and he hasn't learned yet that if you're a believer and you're trusting the promises of God, you have to think outside the box of empiricism, of human empiricism and human rationalism. You have to focus on life and life situations and life's experiences on the basis of who God is and what He can do, and not on the basis of your limited experience or your human reason. So Philip fails the test. He's operating on empiricism. And so, um, verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, says to him, Jesus, now Andrew's got a little bit more on the ball, but not a whole lot. He says, there's a lad here. He's still thinking pretty physically, too. He said, and he's probably saying this in terms of, well, there's not only is there no store, but the food that's here isn't very much either. There's a lad here who has five barley loaves. Now, in their culture, this a barley loaf is the food of the poor. It was the lowest-priced, lowest-nutrition bread available. This is the, food, the, the poorest. This, this would be just sliced white bread. Very little nutritional value, very common, just what the cheapest stuff available at the store. Five barley loaves, and they wouldn't be very big, and two fish. Now, the word that that is used for fish here is not a large fish. This is a particular kind of fish that and that is unique to the Sea of Galilee. Now, who's writing this this gospel? It's John. What's John's background? He's a fisherman. Where did he fish? The Sea of Galilee. So this just gives us further evidence that the person who writes this gospel is familiar with the fish in the Sea of Galilee because a general word for fish is used in the other gospels, but he uses a Greek word here that speaks about a particular kind of fish that's about the size of a sardine. And they would take the, they would catch thousands of these fish in their nets and they would pickle them or they would salt them and they would then just sort of mash them up, sort of like tuna fish, and spread them on their, on their bread. It was a very light covering of, of fish. So he's got five barley loaves and two sardines. That's not much. So Jesus said to them, have the people sit down. And then John adds a little note here. He says, now there was much grass in the place. So Jesus says, okay, get comfortable. Sit down over here on the grass. Make yourselves comfortable. This is going to take some time. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. Now, that's 5,000 men, so that means there's probably between twelve and 15,000 people in all. Now, before we go any further, we must understand something about eating in the Scripture. What is the significance of eating? Scripture says a lot about eating, and it has a doctrinal significance. If you go back into the Old Testament, the first time you really see some, an aspect of eating is in Exodus 24, after, after the Exodus and after they've been delivered. Exodus 24:11, God says, this is after a disciplinary scenario, it says, And he, God, did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, and they beheld God, and they ate and drank. This is a picture of a covenant feast, a celebration of fellowship with God. Psalm 22:26 mirrors the same idea that eating pictures fellowship with God. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. But it goes beyond simply the fellowship aspect with God to the provision of God for spiritual nourishment. The blessing of God's provision for man's need. And it is a picture in Psalm 22 of the blessing in the Messianic kingdom. Isaiah 55.1 takes it another step further. Isaiah 55.1 says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. 
come by wine and milk without money and without cost. And there is a reference to God's grace provision of His Word. That it is without cost. It is free of charge. God has freely provided us with all that we need in order to take care of our needs. Our spiritual sustenance. And that is what we see here. Look at verse 11. Jesus therefore took the loaves. That's the five loaves. Now, here's the picture. Jesus takes the loaves and He gives thanks for the loaves. Jesus is in front of the crowd and He's got the twelve disciples around Him. And He gives to them. He's got the basket here and He says, okay, you guys line up. And He distributes it to the apostles first. And then it is the apostles who go out and distribute. Now, these boys are hungry too. And they're looking at all this food and they're wondering where it's coming from. And they keep coming back and filling up their basket again and going out and distributing it and to feed about twelve or 15,000 people when you only have 12 ushers is going to take some time. And the more food they distribute, the hungrier they become. They want to know, well, are my needs going to be taken care of as well? And verse 11 says, Jesus therefore took the loaves and having given thanks, He distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. Sufficient. This is the sufficiency of Scripture. It is more than we need. It is all that we need. God supplies everything. And it's then in verse 12, And when they were filled, when they had all they wanted and everybody's appetite was satiated, then Jesus said to His disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled, how many baskets? Twelve baskets full. Now this is not a small little picnic basket or one of those small little baskets that you see churches use to take up the offering. These, the word that's used here is of a particular kind of basket that the Jews would use to haul their produce to market. It's large. It's a large basket that would probably be close to a bushel in size. And so they gather up 12 baskets full. 12 baskets, 12 disciples. There's not only enough to feed the 5,000 plus, there's enough left over to feed them and there's still food left over. The grace of God is super abundant. It gives us more than we can ask or think. And it supplies our every need. We can think of nothing that God's provision does not supply. Now, next week when we come back, we're going to see just exactly how Jesus applies this to the people. Because after the incident, just as we saw in John chapter 5, there's the incident that takes place. And then Jesus is going to teach us some doctrine about what has just happened. And when we get into the what is called the Bread of Life Discourse, we're going to see some phenomenal doctrine here about the sufficiency of Christ and the spiritual nourishment that God provides for us and its priority in our lives. And like I said, if, if doctrine's not a priority in your life, then maybe you ought to be somewhere else the next few weeks because this is really going to step on a lot of our toes. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank You for this opportunity to look at Your Word and to be reminded of how important it is to take in Your Word, that this is the spiritual nourishment that You have given us and that You have decided from eternity past that the way in which we would, as believers, would gain the nutrition we need to grow and advance spiritually is through the teaching of Your Word. Because this challenges us on a day-by-day basis with our volitional responsibility to make the decisions to orient our lives and our priorities in such a way that it reflects our eternal values. That only through your word can we gain that which has eternal value and that which gives us real life. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these truths that we might remember them in the coming week and not just forget it as we go away. Father, we also pray that if there's anyone here who's without hope, without eternal life, that you would make the issue clear to them. The salvation is in Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone in Christ alone. It's not by works. It's not by church attendance. It's not by giving money to the church. It's a free gift 
Just as Jesus freely supplied the food, so you freely supplied salvation. All we have to do is accept it. Now, Father, as we close, we pray that you would help us to remember these things, that we might be nourished by them and grow to spiritual maturity. In Jesus' name, amen.